Well, we have here Malachi chapter 4, the very last words of Malachi and the last words of the Old Testament. Let me just read verses 4 through to 6, the last three verses of the uh, Old Covenant. These are the last words of God to his ancient people. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So here are the last words of the Old Testament, the last preparatory words uh, before Messiah would come. After Malachi has uttered these words and written down, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, his prophecy, there will follow 400 years of Silence. There will be no more direct prophetic words from the Lord that are to be included in Scripture. There will be no more prophetic dreams or visions, no more theophanies, until around about 400 years plus later, give or take a year or two, around about 400 years, angels begin to appear and start to announce things. One appears to Zechariah, and then to Mary, and then to Joseph in a dream. And then there's a whole company of angels appearing to shepherds, and then angels appear to some wise men in a dream and say, don't go back uh, the way of Herod, go back by another route. And then uh, the ministry of John the Baptist, and then the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But uh, 400 silent years, no direct revelations from the Lord. What are they to do for those 400 years? <clears throat> well, here it is, verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. God was still speaking. Because once God has spoken, he is speaking. And what we have here is the living, active word of God. And what is written in Genesis, uh, we believe, uh, if tradition is right, uh, Moses... Uh, the first five books, and then the prophets who interpreted and applied the law and pointed towards the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as their uh, revelations and prophecies and teachings are written down. This is the word of God, and God still speaks. Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So although there were no direct revelations, for the people of God, his final words to them were, remember, remember the things that I have said. Remember the words and the law given 
to Moses. The word of God, uh, his law. He still speaks to his people today. And in those 400 years, they had the word of God speaking to them. The law, remember the law of my servant Moses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scorners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. God still speaking. Psalm 119. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. All that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. The law of the Lord. God still speaking. How can a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. We could go on and on through Psalm 119 in particular. God still speaking through his word. But I want to uh, turn us to Deuteronomy, the final reference in, in this area, and chapter 6. Start at verse 1. Now this is the commandments, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I commanded you, you and your son and your grandson, Going down the generations now, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that they may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, your, the, the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Here's the law of the Lord. And I think this speaks very much to, to families in Deuteronomy. Uh, 
fathers to sons and to grandsons, and to teach the family when you sit down for a meal or when you're out walking in the way, uh, we talk about the things of God to our children. And it is wonderful and it is powerful. It's a testimony and a witness to them. Whose responsibility is it to teach the children of the church the great truths of the Bible? Well, parents, it's your primary responsibility before God to be teachers of your children. There's little Phoebe looking on now and uh, giving me a wave. But um, how marvellous, how wonderful. Uh, what's the place of the church? Well, to help and to supplement and to support. But it's not the church's primary responsibility to teach your children. It is your responsibility as parents. But thank God for gospel churches where that teaching can go on to help you and to supplement it all. So, what are they to do in those 400 years? Well, they have the Word of God, and they are to read it, and to absorb it, they are to delight in it, they are to love it, and the focus is that they are to love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength. And they are to continue doing that until, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And what will he do? He will turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Continue to read and to love and to apply the law of Moses until that time when Messiah will come. The very first promise in the Old Testament of the Messiah comes in Genesis 3 and verse 15. And surely God keeps his promises and surely he would come. But there would be a sign that the Jews would have before the first coming of the Messiah or the coming of the Messiah. That's all really all they knew. Although the Old Testament is full of prophecies about what we now know as the first coming of Jesus Christ, it's also packed with prophecies about the return of Jesus Christ. But how would the people of God, standing back in those misty depths, looking at those two sets of prophecies, be able to distinguish one from the other? And still the Jews today who haven't received Christ are looking for the coming of Messiah because as far as they're concerned, he will only come the once and he hasn't come yet. And that's what many were thinking in Old Testament times, looking to the fulfilment of the promise. But we know, with the, history, with the great hindsight and the spiritual privileges that we have, there are two appearings of Messiah. But in his first appearing, what would the sign be? Well, there would be a forerunner. There would be a herald. And Malachi sees these two events and begins to speak about them both in verse 5. He's already spoken about them both in chapter 3 and the opening verses there. Uh, Behold, verse 1 of chapter 3, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Same person here, Elijah, the prophet, I will send him. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but 
Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. So Malachi, these two events, they seem to mingle into one. You and I are in the interim between the two. We can look back on his first coming. We can read the Old Testament and pick out prophecies about his first appearing. But we're still in the valley between these two peaks. And it's been 2,000 years now. I mean, they had to wait 400 years for this first event. We've been waiting. Well, I haven't personally been waiting. We haven't personally been waiting. I mean, I've been waiting since I was 19. And now I'm 66, so it's 47 years I've been waiting. Some of you can beat me on that. Some of you have been believers longer than me. 47 years me. Some of you aren't 47 years old, and you're thinking, 47 years? Goodness me, my dad's not even that old. Some of you, maybe your granddads aren't even that old. But the church has been waiting these 2,000 years. We passed the first peak. We're looking to the second peak. Which is the greater? There in the Old Testament, the prophecies, Messiah. Nathan were here, he'd tell us all about mountaineering. Uh, I don't do much mountaineering. I've climbed one or two. And looking at a hill, maybe there's a range of hills you see, and, uh, oh, we'll climb there. And that seems to be the height of the peaks there. And the two peaks we're looking at seem to merge together. But you climb the first one, only to find the second one is a long way off and a great valley between the two. It's all about perspective. And... Uh, yeah, which is the greater peak? Which is the greater event? The first coming of Jesus Christ or his return? His first coming only has any meaning in reference to his second coming. For his first coming was to make it safe for us when he ultimately puts all things right. If he hadn't come the first time, we'd all be in great fear about his return. But his first coming, when Jesus Christ came into the world to deal with our sin, our most urgent, pressing problem before a holy God is our sin, and Christ came into the world to prepare us for that great momentous event that's still ahead, 2,000 years the church has been waiting. It hasn't happened yet. Do you doubt that it will happen? Of course it will happen. How's this world got here? What's it all about? We're moving towards an event. And the first coming of Jesus Christ brought about the means whereby your sin can be forgiven and you can be covered. In the same way when the angel of death passed over Egypt and the firstborn of all those who weren't protected by the blood on the doorpost died. So you need the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to protect you because there's a day coming, it hasn't happened yet, when that mighty event will happen. The only way to be safe on that day is to have an interest in the first event, advent of Jesus Christ. God became one of us in Jesus. He's God the Son. Don't forget that. Sent by the Father, God the Son. He comes in the power of God the Holy Spirit. One being, three 
persons, a mystery, yes. Let's not confuse the persons, let's not divide the substance. One being, three persons, the Father sends the Son to prepare us for that momentous event, either our personal death or His return, but particularly His return, because at that point all the dead throughout the rolling histories of time Graves will give up their dead and the atoms will be recombined and we will all have a resurrection body. Everybody will get one. And then the final judgment. And all that matters on that day, who can stand the day of His coming? Psalm 24 puts it this way, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in His holy presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, who's got those? Not only my deeds, but my motivations. May God search us. Hopeless. He's got a fire. A fire is an illustration of the utter purity of the being of God. Who can abide the day of His coming? He's like a refiner's fire. The heat and all dross is consumed and only righteousness will remain. How can I be safe on that day? Only by being covered in the work of Jesus Christ. God becomes a man. Doesn't stop being God. One person now, two natures. Fully God, fully man. Not a division of the two. Not a blending of the two. One person, two natures. As a man, he can represent mankind. He didn't become an angel. <laughs> There's no hope for angels. That's why they were panicking. You know, we read in Luke's Gospel this morning, we know who you are. They weren't happy about it. Have you come to destroy us? It's not time yet. No, it wasn't time. There's no way out for them. Just this impending doom. He didn't become an angel. He became a man to save mankind. But he didn't stop being God. So in his sacrifice on the cross, there's infinite worth. His life was for you. His death was in our place. How do we know it's true? He rose again from the dead. Death hangs on to sinners. He'd done nothing wrong. Mr. Death had to give up his latest victim. And up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. There's the first coming. But that's to prepare you and I for his return. And the two are being mentioned here in Malachi and throughout the Old Testament. So after 400 years, how do we know Messiah is about to come. Well, Elijah is going to be sent before him. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet <coughs> before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's looking more to the second coming, but Elijah before the first coming. Elijah the prophet in the Old Testament, fiery and wild, appeared from nowhere, and uh, then he's taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot eventually. Fiery and wild. Well, who is this Elijah who will be sent before the coming of the Messiah? Well, of course, it's John the Baptist, who in the desert was also fiery and wild. There is no doubt the Elijah to come is fulfilled in John the Baptist. Matthew 17, for example, let me start at verse 10. And his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Well, because Malachi says Elijah must come first. And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. 
But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. They had him beheaded. They rejected and despised him. And Jesus reflects on this. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. What will John the Baptist do? What's part of his ministry? Verse 6 of Malachi 4, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Well, keep that in mind and let's turn to Luke chapter 1 and verse 13. Here's Zechariah in the temple. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, so born again before he was born. Quite a rare thing. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. There's that primary relationship he's going to restore. And he will go before him in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Listen, relationships are going to be restored under his preaching. And the key one is the relationship with God. But how do I know that's been put right? My friends, these are put right. And there's no shenanigans going on, particularly not in a local church, because we're brothers and sisters, blood-bought children, and hearts are going to be reunited and turned back to each other. The proof that this is right is it's demonstrated here. And if this isn't right, don't go on about this. There's something wrong here. If this isn't right. And John the Baptist was penetrating in his preaching. And the keynote of what he had to say was that people needed to repent. So the second peak we're still waiting for. We're looking towards a great and dreadful event known here as the dreadful day of the Lord. In chapter 3 and verse 2, who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? So the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the two are together there in the Old Testament. How do we distinguish? But for you and I, we're in this valley. How long is the valley? How long did the people have to wait before the first coming of Christ? We now know it was 400 years. They didn't know. But keep on looking to the law and the testimony until I send Elijah. How long have we got left? Seems to be a long time. Peter has this in mind as he's uh, writing his second letter. Many scoffers will come scoffing. That's what scoffers do. You know, they scoff and the Bible's got it clear. Scoffers will come. What are they going to do? Scoff. Scoffers will come scoffing. Where is this coming that he promised? Now, it was only 40 years after the first appearing and they're still 
scoffing at that point. Well, we've got 2,000 years now. Do you think he's slow in keeping his promises? Well, Peter's inspired to say, no, he's not slow. He's patient with you. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So what's holding up the second coming? Could be you. Have you believed yet? What a dastardly thing to hold up the second coming. Shame on you. There's one thing that's said by Peter, but another thing is this. Oh, a thousand years, or as a day, and a day as a thousand years. What time is it in heaven? What time is it in Cardiff? Seven o'clock, time I was finishing. And uh, the seconds are going on. This is a pretty accurate watch because it's linked to satellites. So 7 o'clock and 15 seconds, 17 seconds, 18 seconds, 19 seconds, 20 seconds, 21 seconds. Different time in America, different time in Uganda, different time in Ukraine. Time, time. What time is it in heaven? Timeless. Oh, eternity. What's a day? thousand years. What's a thousand years? A day. His first coming was only two days ago. Why are we being impatient? Two days. Eternity. We're moving through that valley. But God knows the time that he set. Well, let me conclude by saying this. What should we do? My friend, if you're not saved, you need to get saved. There's a dreadful day coming. The momentous event. It's the only major prophecy left to be fulfilled. There are signs that will accompany his return. But don't be too hasty saying, well, this is it, that is it. We shouldn't be caught unawares. But you need to get saved. How? How do I do that? Well, sin needs to be removed. How is it removed? Only in Jesus Christ. His person and his purpose. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose again by his spirit. He's revealing these things to you. And you need to do something very, very particular. <clears throat> two weeks ago, I was um, a little disappointed in one of... Uh, the men I, I admire greatly, actually, an American preacher called Paul Washer. And I thought, oh dear, Paul Washer, what are you doing? Because he posted on his social media a Valentine's Day poem. I thought, well, he's really... Well, what's, what's he doing? Valentine's Day poem. He's, he's better than that, surely. Valentine's Day. So I'll read it. Roses are red, violets are blue, repent. And the poem finished. I thought, well, no, that's Paul Washer. Very direct, very direct, very much to the point. Repent. Turn away from what you are and see where it's heading you. A pretty miserable life, little sparks of uh, thrills here and there, but by and large, what's it all about? Sense of 
this impending judgment? You have a conscience. What's it telling you? How can you deal with a guilty conscience only through the blood of Jesus Christ? My friend, roses are red, violets are blue. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Get ready for that momentous event. But for we who have trusted Christ, then we're back to verse 4. We need to live. We have not only the law of Moses, but we have the grace and truth that have come through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a full revelation. We have two testaments. We have the old covenant. We have the new uh, covenants. The same message, but different dispensations in the two. One applied by signs and symbols. The other one fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have his law and we look to keep his law. Just very briefly, the law is in three parts in the Old Testament. There is the moral law, and I read it to us, and the Ten Commandments, and they stand for the whole of forever, even in heaven. And the summary, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And won't it be wonderful to be up there, because we're going to do that. We're going to do that. There'll be no misunderstandings. No one will be taking offenses. No one will be giving fences. All fences will be down. Offenses and infences, whatever. No fences at all. And all one and no barriers. Oh, what a glory that will be. But there are ten commandments. Some seem to think there are only nine. There, are, there really are ten. And as I read them, it's very interesting that the one people are trying to push away is given the most space. It's called uh, the Sabbath. Now, it was a Saturday. It's now a Sunday. And uh, we're not going to be stoned if we don't keep it as they were in Old Testament times. And, uh, but I ought to want to keep it. What a delight. What a delight. How many services should I go to? How many services does your church have? Only one. And you're going to one then, aren't you? Oh, they have three in mine. Oh, how blessed you are. Oh, happy day. Three? Three? Wow, yeah, I'll have an extra helping of that. Well, we have two. Poor us. Now, our services are quite short. Gone on a bit longer tonight, seven minutes past seven. Hope you're not counting or looking too closely. If we were in parts of India where folks have been recently preaching, they won't put up with less than a couple of hours from a sermon. So shall I carry on till nine? Oh, you're nodding your head. I, well, let's see. Um, I won't, I won't. But maybe a day will come when that hunger and thirst will, will increase. But we have the moral law. There's also the ceremonial law. And we don't keep that anymore because that's the symbol and the pictures of Christ, the priesthood and the sacrifices and the incense and the festivals. We're all fulfilled in Christ, so we don't sacrifice anybody on an altar. We don't have an altar. Why? No sacrifice left for sin. It's been done. We have a table to remember. That's important. So the ceremonial law, that's done away with. There's also the civil law in the Old Testament. And in a sense, we sort of keep that, but it depends on the laws of our particular governments. And so at the moment, we feel a bit frustrated, but we will drive at 20 miles an hour, won't we? Or they actually allow 26 for the time being. And that's apparently okay. And so there's the law. And we have it 
But there's also grace. And in Jesus Christ, we love to keep his law. And that law isn't burdensome because in keeping it, we express our love to him who loved us and gave himself for us. And then we're looking. Final point of make. We're, we're looking. We're anxiously looking out. And the words used in 2 Peter are a little bit like a watchman. We're looking out. We're expecting the day to come. Hasn't come yet. But it will as surely as his first coming happened, so will his second appearing. And we're looking forward to that day. A new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And so thus ends what we know as the Old Testament of the Bible. Then you turn a page and those wonderful events begin to occur. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this brief time in your word. We pray, Lord, you help us to live in the light of eternity constantly. Thank you for your word that we would love your word and love your law in the light of all that's been done for us in Christ to delight to keep those wonderful commandments because we love you. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, we're going to close with our final hymn. It is a long one. I, I do sort of apologize for that, but it's not as long as it could be. It's written by Anne Ross Cousin, the wife of William Cousin, the Free Church of Scotland minister in the 19th century. Um, Anne Ross Cousin was a, a, an accomplished musician, poet, and wrote hymns under uh, her husband's ministry. This particular hymn, The Sands of Time, was written in 1854. It's based on the life of um, Samuel Rutherford, and particularly on his last words, which were, meet me at God's right hand in Emmanuel's land. But uh, originally there were 19 verses but tonight we'll just sing a select six of them. Uh, 816, the sands of time are sinking.
And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen.